DC Public Library podcast is made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and is a production of the labs at DC Public Library. You are listening to the DC Public Library podcast. We are recording today from our new home at the recently modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library located in downtown Washington, DC. This episode is a part of the All Things Local series, where we highlight the local history, culture, communities, and personages who have made an impact on Washington, D.C. My name is Olubumi Bakari, and I am one of the library associates here at the Labs. Today, I am joined by Ronald Smokey Stevens. Mr. Stevens is a frequent visitor and neighbor of the Anacostia Neighborhood Library. He joins me today to discuss his success as an author, filmmaker, and performer. We also discuss his failures and how he overcame the addictions, battles, and struggles in his life. You are a native Washingtonian. Mm-hmm. Share with our listeners uh, where you grew up and a little bit about your childhood. Okay. As you just stated, I am a native Washingtonian. I grew up in the Trinidad Ivy City area, northeast area of Washington, D.C. I attended Webb Elementary, <laughs> junior, uh, elementary School, Langley Junior High, and graduated from Eastern High School. I attended Bowie State College uh, for a semester or two. I attended uh, Maryland University for a semester or two, and then I ultimately uh, attended Howard University. But at the time, I was really, you know, when you're young, sometimes you make foolish choices and you don't really have an overview of the world and what you should be doing. I was tired of school. I was tired of the mundane memorization, the rote teaching. It just school was not exciting. So I was really looking for something else. And I found theater. Okay. So... In your childhood, you know, growing up in Washington, D.C., was there anything that inspired you to grow into theater or was it just you being tired of school? (laughs) No, destiny, destiny kind of took over at a very early age in the 11th grade. I got my first job with the D.C. Black, the D.C. Recreation Department summer job program on the showmobile and the showmobile was a touring stage that traveled to all of the city recreation departments and it was a trailer truck and the sides let down and that became the stage for music, musicians, singers, dancers and all things entertainment. That was my first job. I basically wanted to just hang out with my buddies. I just wanted to be on the stage crew. But my buddies, at the time, they were singing with another group. And the only job they said they had was to work as a technician. No, was to work as an actor performing in a play. And I had never been in a play before, but that previous year, I saw Arena Stage and their traveling troupe of players came to Easton High School in my English class. And that was the first time that I'd ever seen 
actors face to face. And um, at that moment, a seed was planted in my spirit. I don't know. It was just so um, upon graduating, um, I traveled around the country doing this and doing that. But then I came back to Washington, D.C. and Robert Hooks. The actor was creating the D.C. Black Repertory Company, and it was the first black theater company in Washington, D.C. in decades. And so as opposed to studying and going to college, I did my studying and my training in a repertory for six years at the D.C. Black Repertory Company, where I received my master's. So share with our listeners a little bit about that company because it has quite a history. Oh, it does. Okay. The D.C. Black Repertory Company, as I said, was the first black professional company in Washington, D.C. in decades. And it was designed not only to give artisans in Washington, D.C. the opportunity to perform in a professional environment. It also provided a training program where we as artisans actually trained and studied in the disciplines of acting, singing, and dancing for a six-year period. And in that six-year period, studying at the D.C. by Repertory Company, I had an opportunity to perform a variety of classic plays. I also studied dance with Mike Malone, the late Mike Malone, who founded the Ellington School of the Arts. I had the opportunity to study with his dance company and also study with Miss Bernice Reagan, the creator of Sweet Honey and the Rock, the vocal historian. So in those six years of studying in repertory at the D.C. Black Repertory Company, I became a fine-tuned instrument ready for Broadway. How many years did you spend with that company? Six years, from 1970 to 1976. And we studied intensively. We performed classic theater productions, and we trained After you left the company, you went to New York to the big time. My very first job occurred after studying in repertory at the D.C. Black Rep for six years. I got my first job on the National Black Touring Circuit, which was founded and started by Mr. Woody King in New York City. And I performed in a play by Ron Milner entitled Showdown Time. And in that production, you all know, you've probably seen TV, um, you all know Lynn Whitfield. Well, you should know who Lynn Whitfield is. She's a fantastic actress who's had a lot of wonderful acting opportunities, who starred as Josephine Baker Mm -hmm. in the film, and she's done a lot of uh, film work and TV work. But she and I were the first two members of the D.C. Black Revenue Company to actually leave and go on tour. And my first job out of Washington was on the National Black Touring Circuit with Mr. Woody King. Broadway <laughs> is a is a huge part of your life. You've acted, you've sang on Broadway, you've danced on Broadway. So share with our listeners your experiences, some of the people that you work with. Wow. Um, some of the productions that you yourself have produced. Okay. Okay. Well, my, after that first production on the National Black Touring Circuit, 
Once it closed, two weeks later, I auditioned for my very first Broadway show, which was entitled Bubbling Brown Sugar. And Bubbling Brown Sugar paid a tribute to the Harlem Renaissance and all of the wonderfulness, the music, comedy, songs, and dance that was prevalent in the Harlem Renaissance. After Bubbling Brown Sugar, I was able to perform, actually, in five other Broadway productions because all shows were open, but all shows closed. And so that's just the life of a Broadway artist or anyone in show business. You have no job security. But I was trained well. I had great technique as an actor. I had great technique as a dancer and I could sing. So I was versatile enough to move in many areas on the Broadway scene. And so after Bubbling Brown Sugar, I was able to perform. Well, in that company, I made the, I met the late Avon Long, who starred as Sporting Life in the original uh, company of, oh my God, it's so much, uh, Avon of, um, oh, I'm so sorry, I just can't pull up the show that Avon Long is really known for, but he was one of the noted stars in Bubbly Brown Sugar. I went on then to perform in four more Broadway shows, uh, Dream Girls with Shirley Ralph, just won the Emmy. I performed in Dream Girls with Shirley Ralph. I performed in uh, Ain't Misbehaving, another tribute to the music of Fess Waller. I performed with Melba Moore in... Um, um, uh, what was Melba Moore's show called? And then I also had the opportunity to create my own Broadway show, which was entitled Rolling on the T-O-B-A, a tribute to the last days of Black Vaudeville. And that Melba Moore production was called Innocent Black. You know, after doing this stuff for five decades, you know, a lot of names, they all start getting confusing. But uh, yeah, that Melba Moore production on Broadway was entitled Innocent Black. And so um, I had the opportunity to work with the legendary tap dancer, Mr. Charles Honey Coles, who gave me my insight into what it was like to be a black performer on in show business and particularly on Broadway. And Honey Coles was a legendary tap dancer, a legendary, and you all would be, you would be benefited by doing your research and Google who Charles Honey Coles was. While traveling, also had the opportunity to work on a Bob Hope special with Mr. Bob Hope. I had the opportunity to dance with Lucille Ball while I was out in California. Bubbling Brown Sugar was performing in Los Angeles at the Pantages Theater, and one of the stars of the company, Bob Hope, fell in love with her. Her name was Vivian Reed. He wanted her on a Bob Hope special. I'm dancing with Vivian Reed in the show. I get a chance to perform with her. And Lucille Ball needed some dances as well. So I did a number with uh, I Love Lucy. I'm probably the only black man that ever held the arm of Lucille Ball on TV, film, or stage. Isn't that something? <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> but also, while performing in my Broadway shows, I was able to audition for The Wiz, the black version of The Wiz, starring Michael Jackson, Donna Ross, and all those folks. Michael Jackson was a scarecrow. Remember those four crows? Well, Smokey Stevens is one of the four crows dancing with Michael Jackson in The Wiz. 
I'm the skinny crow with no sleeves on the tuxedo and the blue lapel. Oh, in case you watch it again. So you you mentioned you went from Broadway and stage plays to film. Mm-hmm. Were there any other films besides The Wiz that you were able to? Sure. Yeah. Um, you can see me now in the Cotton Club film starring Richard Gere and Gregory Hines. You know, Jack A. Harry? Jackie Harry, the actress, she and I portrayed the comedy team of Butterbeans and Susie in the Cotton Club film. So you can see me in that, as well as one of the Crows and the Wiz. And I did another film called Times Square, which is a little stupid film, but, you know, <laughs> I didn't have a major role. I just had a little teeny tiny role. So, but uh, yeah. I was able to work with, uh, in Las Vegas, I was able to work on a, um, with Jerry Lewis. Remember his uh, um, telethons that Jerry Lewis used to produce to raise monies mm-hmm. and what have you while in Vegas performing in another show? I actually had the opportunity to <laughs> meet and work with Mr. Jerry Lewis. Can you believe that? Yeah. So you've worked on stage, you've worked in film. Mm-hmm. Then you said, you know what, I want to write. Uh, As a writer, I've now grown to be a self-published author, and I have self-published two books. And my first book is entitled The First 60 Years, The History of Afro-American Musical Theater and Entertainment, 1865 through 1930. Mm, um, let me tell you how I got to write that book. I created a show, as I said, that was called Rolling on the T-O-B-A, a tribute to the last days of Black Vaudeville. T-O-B-A stands for the Theater Owners Booking Association, which was a Black Vaudeville circuit that began in 1922. However, the T-O-B-A was a white man's version of the original black vaudeville circuit that started here in Washington, D.C. by a black man by the name of Sherman H. Dudley. In 1911, Sherman H. Dudley retired as a performer. He moved to Washington, D.C. He purchased five theaters In 1911, he purchased five theaters in Washington, D.C. Upon purchasing those five, he sent out a call to action in the National Black Paper at the time, which was called the Indianapolis Freeman. And he asked black people in America, if you could secure a building Not any trash, but if you could secure a legitimate theater, I can provide theater in your city for 365 days a year. And after that proclamation went out, by 1916, Sherman H. Dudley had amassed over 28 theaters, Black-owned theaters in the United States of America, owned and run right here in Washington, D.C., okay? Sherman H. Dudley did that, and that was the beginning and the establishment of Black Vaudeville. So I, after being on Bubbling Brown Sugar, I became aware of the comedy, the music, and the songs and the dances that were prevalent during that period, and it kind of like stimulated something in me. So after performing in Bubbling, I did more research, and I 
came up with my own show to pay a tribute to that period called Rolling on the T-O-B-A. However, at the time, I hadn't done my research. Well, when my Broadway show closed, everyone said, Smokey, you should write a book on Black Vaudeville. Nobody knows anything about Black Vaudeville. And so I did. I took up the challenge. I studied at the Schaumburg Library for six months, and I amassed some history about us as black people from 1865, right after the Emancipation Proclamation through 1930 before the Great Depression. I uncovered history about us as black people that is seldom discussed and little known. Between 1865 and 1930, black people basically laid the foundation for the entertainment industry as we know it today. Okay, everybody loves Beyonce and JB, Jay-Z. In my book, The First 60 Years, I introduce America to the first black performing artists in American history that ever performed in a legitimate way. I talk about the Beyonce's and the Jay-Z's of the early 1800s. And then I go on through that period up until as the uh, 19th century came to a close, I introduce you to Ma Rainey, who was the first black female entrepreneur in the entertainment industry. I introduce you to Sissy Aretta Jones. She was the second black female entrepreneur. I introduce you to Bob Cole. Bob Cole was the creator of black theater as we know it today. In 1897, Bob Cole created what became known as urban stock companies. In doing this, he broke away completely from the mold of the minstrelsy seeing us in blackface, and he started creating an environment where we could see ourselves on stage as we were, and it became known as stock companies, and that was the beginning of black theater as we know it. And guess who had one of the first stock companies in America? The Howard Theater, right here in Washington, D.C., and that stock company was the Stevens and Williams Stock Company right here at the Howard Theater in the early 1900s. After my show closed, people said, Smokey, you ought to write a book. I wrote the book, and that's the history that I discovered that the world should know, particularly you folks here in D.C. who who are proud of saying uh, Black Broadway on U Street as if that was some claim to our fame. No, it was not. Our artistic uh, contributions began long before there was ever a Black Broadway on U Street. And so that's what my history book uncovers. I have a second book. Well, I have another book that I self-published, and this book is called Behind the Glitz and the Glamour, Showbiz Stories by Smokey Stevens. And I told, I wrote this book because I've had the unique opportunity to work with Arcee Davis and Ruby D, Michael Jackson, Lena Horne, Cab Calloway, Diana Ross, and people have always asked, what is it like working with those people? So I wrote a book to let the world know what it was like meeting and working with those show business legends. So in addition (laughs) to being a writer, you are also a 
filmmaker. Yeah. So uh, two of your films, which we are going to screen here at uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. Library in the labs on the A-level. Um, and then another, we will also screen it at the Dorothy Hyde Benning Library as well. Okay. What mean? The story of... DC hand dancing. Um, yeah. It's called Dancing Destinations: The Story of DC Hand Dance. Um, and there's another film that you also um, wrote, directed, produced. It's called Preserving LeDroid Park: A Historic Community in Washington D.C. So first, um, let's talk about your dancing destination. Okay, as a performing artist on stage. It's just a reality. When the lights go out and the curtains close, it's over. It's over. After all of the years of performing on stage, I wanted my work to have some longevity. I wanted my work to be seen by not just the audience members who are seeing me perform that night, but I wanted my work to be seen by the world. And the only way to do that was to become a filmmaker. So after my Broadway show closed, I came back to Washington, D.C., and I began the quest of studying and learning how to make films. And actually, I went to DC TV <laughs> and their filmmaking producers course. I took that 12 week course at DC TV, and we had a culminating event where we were broken into groups. And in my group, we had to create a six minute culminating event. So I produced, we produced a piece on the ARC, the Town Hall Arts Recreation Center over in, over in Southeast. And that was a six minute expose. Following that, because I have so many stories that I just want to tell, I began shooting and making my first film. Now, I lived in Leedroy Park. And right across my, right across the street was a boarded up house. And I looked at that house for six years until I read the sign. And that sign said this home belonged to Robert H. and Murray Church Terrell. I said, wow, I did the research on those people. And then all through Lee Joy Park, you see these little signs of people that used to live here. When I discovered that I was living in a bastion of black, I mean, of black history, <clears throat> I want to shoot this. And so that became my first um, first featured film. I told the history of Lejoy Park, which is a black enclave right over there in Howard University between Rhode Island and 7th and U Street and V. Right. It's a 24 block. Uh, it's a black enclave. And I told the history, the makings, the form the development of the neighborhood, the architecture, architectural style of the neighborhood, the original architect. And then I introduce you to all of the black people who've lived in Lee Joy Park that made it or gave it its historic landmark designation. And that was my first film out of DCTV. And um, following that, you know, uh, the story, I, um, I had a concept, you know, I wanted to just, I used to watch the Food Channel a lot and traveling and eating, I found exciting. And I said, well, why don't I travel and go to some dancing destinations? Everybody, every culture dance, 
every culture eats. So let me, Dancing Destinations, yeah, that's the name of my piece. So I'm going to take the viewer to some wonderful, fantastic destinations and share the dance culture of all of those environments. And I started with Washington, D.C. And so the D.C. Hand Dance is the official dance of Washington, D.C. by proclamation from the city council. And it was incumbent upon me to research and tell that story. I grew up hand dancing. If you're from D.C. and you're a baby boomer, we all grew up hand dancing. Hand dancing is in our blood. So it was a great joy and a you know pleasure to really capture all of that history and to meet and talk with the individuals, the seniors today who are keeping hand dance alive. It was a pleasure just meeting Mr. Lawrence Bradford uh, and uh, Mr. Earl Pope and the people from the uh, 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 hand dance association and so um, I find it I loved making films because films will last forever and films will give you a universal audience where stage will give you just the audience for that night and so that's how I began my filmmaking journey. I've made um, two more. I have another film entitled America, an Immigration Nation, where I tell the history of immigration to this great country, the beginnings of xenophobia and nepotism, not nepotism, but I tell the history of the immigration story in America, and that's another film that I'm really proud of. But as an actor, I want to say to those listening, you have to be diverse. You can't just, I mean, you can just be a one-talent actor, but your jobs and your chances of survival and your chances of longevity is you have to be versed in a lot, a lot of areas. And so I take great pride in studying and always having a hunger and a desire to want to learn. And I'm going to become a storyteller and storytelling is what I do best. And so film was a great way to have my story shared around the world. So you've done tons of amazing work in your autobiography. Um, you also mentioned some of your failures Share with our listeners some of your failures and, and how you've overcome them. As I spoke about all of that entertainment and, you know, things that I was involved in, before theater or anything, I ever got exposed to that at all. At a very early age, during the 1967 and 68, during the hippie, the peace and love, the Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin age, I made the mistake of making a wrong turn. And I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol and all that other stuff, like I looked around and saw everybody else was doing. But unfortunately for me, I have an addictive personality, but I didn't discover that until much later on in my life. But I found when I made that wrong turn and I started experimenting and recreating with drugs and alcohol, everybody I knew was doing it. It seemed like that's what we were supposed to do in order to be hip with quotation marks. And uh, so getting high became just a part of my existence. I would create and I would get high. That's what everybody's, that's what it just seemed like everybody was doing. But then 
But then when you do that for a long period of time, you go through a progression. And I want to describe the progression because you start out or experimenting. Oh, I want to try this. I want to try that. And you continue to experiment and you like it and you continue. Then you move out of recreation, no, out of experimentation into the recreation phase where you're just getting high and having a ball and everybody's just enjoying and you're recreating with this and you're recreating with that and everything just so good. And then as you continue, you move out of recreation into dependency. Because you've recreated, this thing now becomes a crutch, or this thing now becomes a good friend, or this thing now becomes something that you depend on. Then you started depending on it. And then after dependency, that's when you start moving into that addictive stage, when you start using to live and live to use. And after that full-blown addictive stage, you become in bondage. And that's when you're on your way out jails, institutions, and death. And it took me falling. One year, my name was up in lights on Broadway. And the next year, I was sitting in a prison cell because I had used drugs all throughout my life. It was something, a safe thing that I could go to. That when my Broadway, I had stopped. I was clean for three and a half years. And I got my show produced on Broadway, and I put every atom of my being, everything that I possibly possess as the, as the co-writer, director, choreographer, and star of my own Broadway show. No black man has done that since 1922. And I knew that that was my ticket to success. But they snatched the rug from under me. They closed my show because of some New York politics. And the pain was so deep. The pain was so deep that I relapsed. And when I did, a year and a half later, I was sitting in a prison cell. <laughs> and it was at that moment when you find yourself, when you're at rock bottom, and you look around, well, for me, I'm not going to say for anybody else, I found myself sitting in the pit of tortured souls. And I was one of the tortured souls sitting on a metal bed, a metal bench for a bed, and worrying about my life on a daily basis. And I just reached up to God one night, and I just asked God to please, 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 if you are there, if you are all that I have ever heard, well, I'm coming to you and asking you, Please, just give me one more chance to live. Please, God, give me, one, just please. And while I sat in prison for that time, God showed up. I can't recall how soon it was afterwards, but God showed up. And while incarcerated, I began to feel free again. I began to 
live again in prison. I even began to create again because that was my Broadway show I closed and I'm full of all this talent. I went to the chaplain of that penitentiary and I had been reading the Bible all the while I was there because I wanted to stay away and they wanted to get in no trouble. I just read books, right? And I rewrote the a contemporary version of the biblical story, The Prodigal Son. Because we all were prodigal sons. We'd all had fallen from God. I took my play to the chaplain and told him who I was. And the chaplain let me produce a play in prison. Now, the only other person that I know of that has ever, ever produced a play in prison, and that's where I got it from, was Mr. Roach Brown right here in D.C., D.C.'s legendary Roach Brown. That's who started the Inner Voices, and that's what got Roach Brown uh, his life sentence commutated because of what he was able to create in that penitentiary environment. And I remember that, and I went to that chaplain, and that chaplain let me produce that play, man, and it was one of the greatest things that I'd ever did, I'd ever done. But I found my power, in answer to how I overcame, I took my power back. Mm -hmm. Because, see, God enables us. He gives us all the power we need to do anything we want. We give our power away to substances. We hand our power away. We just virtually give it away on a silver platter. But you can, you can get that power back. If you believe, if you want it bad enough, and you ask God to help you, to strengthen you, you can overcome anything if you make the choice. But it all starts with a choice. If you never make the choice, it'll never happen. I chose to want to change my life, and God stepped in and helped me, and sister, I ain't look back. That's how I overcame my failures. Wow. What yeah. a life. <laughs> what a story. And as a, a result, a as a result, let me just jump in here because as a result of that, I wrote the book entitled I Just Want to Tell Somebody. But then that book was turned into my one-man stage production. And this January, I had an opportunity to take that story that I just told you. It's in a four, it's in a one-act play that I performed off-Broadway at the Theater for the New City in New York, and they invited me back for another three-week run to perform my one-man story, to tell that story of how I rose, I fell, but I was able to overcome. Congratulations. And I have a message that you can overcome too, if you choose to. All right. And uh, when is the play running? Oh, the, the play day? is entitled, I Just Want to Tell Somebody. Mm -hmm. And it opens November the 10th at Theater for the New City in New York City, and it runs through November the 27th. We were scheduled for January 3rd to January 23rd, but we ex they extended the show through February 26th oh. of this year, and they asked me back. So I'm taking my story because it's my testimony. Okay. It's my life story. And I think God kept me alive because, see, Prince didn't survive. Michael Jackson didn't survive. Michael K. Williams, the black guy from the wire, broke my heart to know that Whitney didn't survive. They're not here to tell their story anymore. But you know what happened? Each and every one of them, they made the choice to try it 
one more time. And that one more time was their last. So my message to anybody who thinks that they may want to experiment or try drugs today, that first time and the next time today, because of fentanyl, can be your last. And that's my message. That's my story. And I'm sticking by it. (laughs) So uh, would you say you fulfilled your life's mission? Oh, I'm living my purpose. My purpose is to inform, to warn, and to also motivate and give people that that inspiration that they too can become empowered. So uh, we're going to wrap up. Okay. (laughs) But before I let you go, well, I have five questions that I ask my guests. Okay. Um, you give me the first answer that comes to you. Okay. okay? Uh, what is your favorite book? My favorite book? Mine. <laughs> the first okay. 60 years, the history of Afro-American musical theater and entertainment, 1865 to 1930. Okay. There I met people so love these Beyonce's and these Jay-Z's. Oh, my God. But I will introduce you to the very first black people that ever, ever was recognized for performing in this country. And every black person, every artist should know who these people are. What is your favorite play? Oh man, I have so many favorite plays. A Soldier's Story. A Soldier's Story is one of the best plays that I've ever seen. That I saw at the Negro Ensemble Company with uh, Samuel Jackson, Denzel Washington, Adolph Caesar. I saw the play. I was working on the stage crew before it became a movie. I saw that play. Yeah, that's one of the best. Who was your favorite actor to work with? The favorite actor to work with, I would say, Cab Calloway the great legendary band leader, and Mr. R.C. Davis of R.C. Davis and Ruby D. Okay. Uh, Where was your favorite place to perform? Paris, France. Okay. I got a chance to do my role in French. While I was in Bubbling Brown Sugar, we were the first black national touring company of the Broadway musical, and I was tutored my role because I was the narrator of the show. I narrated my role in French to the French people. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> and the French people loved it, too. <laughs> How would you like to be remembered? As someone that made a difference in the life or lives of somebody. This has been an episode of All Things Local on the D.C. Public Library podcast. Thank you for listening. You just tuned in to DC Public Library Podcast. Listen and subscribe at dclibrary.org slash podcast or wherever podcasts are available. Send us your comments at DCPL on Twitter or follow us at DC Public Library on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening.